0: Well, friends, our scripture lesson today is uh, taken from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, this is actually a continuation, so we're in the second of three weeks where we are going through uh, this passage, this initial teaching of Jesus, and the thing I mentioned at the start of the message last week is that it begins with Jesus seeing crowds and leaving the crowds. So one of the things to remember is that this is not a teaching that is directed at the crowds, it is a teaching that is directed at the disciples. So he goes up the mountain, and the disciples come to him, and so he's talking to the very limited audience of his original leaders. He's not talking to the masses during this message. And of course, because it's up the mountain, this is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Not terribly creatively named, but that's how it's known. It's the Sermon on the Mount because he went up the mountain in order to talk to his disciples about it. And so last week he delivered all those statements about what he's going to value. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then he continues this Week with this teaching where he uses a couple of metaphors to tell his leadership how they're going to be and that initial metaphor that he uses is this metaphor about salt and so he says you are the salt of the earth salt having been one of the most valuable commodities of the time because salt was used to preserve meat and preserve fish and so the use of salt as a preservative was made it incredibly valuable and so he says you are the salt of the earth and if salt has lost its taste how can it, its saltiness be restored? Now, that's something that may seem a little foreign to us because I don't know about you, but I've never checked the expiration date on a thing of salt. Okay, you know, that, that canister sits there on the shelf, you use it, and it's there forever. So I never sit there and look at a, at a thing of Morton's sitting on the shelf, take it off, no matter how long it's been there, and say, gee, I wonder if it's still good. Gee, I wonder if it's still Salty. Okay? Uh, but this is an artifact of the, the idea that in that time, they mined for salt. You, you know, you've heard about like the salt mines, okay? So they mined for salt, and the salt was not pure. So the salt had other mineral-type substances that were mixed in with it. And so you had this white powder, which was largely salt, all right. But what would happen is that as they stored it and the containers weren't airtight, they didn't have you know, great canisters from Ikea or whatever to store things. And so the moisture would get to it and the moisture would begin to leach the actual salt out. And what it would leave behind is a white powdery residue that didn't have any actual salt in it okay so they it was possible for them to have salt that wasn't salty the stuff that was left over and in fact they say that in that part of the world to this day that still happens that the way they get their salt, it is this impure substance. And so occasionally you do have salt that is, in fact, no longer salty. And when it's no longer salty, it can't be used for anything. It has no particular flavor. It has no preservative quality. And so it becomes something that is appearance without substance. And that is what Jesus is warning about. He's warning about the idea that that we can be people who are who have the appearances but not the actual substance behind us, all right? And I think that happens to us uh, sometimes gradually. I think a lot of folks can appear to be people of faith. They can appear to be people who stand for what God uh, stands for, but in fact there's nothing behind it. There are also people, you know, maybe some of you here are feeling a little bit like that. Maybe not in terms of hypocrisy, but maybe some of you are here feeling a little empty inside. Maybe some of you are here feeling like some of that substance in your life has leached away slowly the way moisture would have eaten away at that salt. And what's left is a little bit of a shell. That's what That what's left is a little bit of an appearance of something that isn't actually real, you know? I think a lot of us go through periods in our lives where we feel like maybe we're faking it. You know, that we're just looking on the outside like everything is good and, and, and we're there and we're with it and all that, but really we're kind of empty and hollow on the inside. And that's a real danger for persons of faith because, because faith is nothing if it's not about authenticity. Okay? F- faith has got to be about who we really are are, and within that understanding who God really is, right? I mean, faith is about bringing everything we are to everything God is, and and so it can't be about having that inauthentic veneer. It has to be about real substance. So we have to be careful that we're not just taking on the appearances of faith with nothing behind it. We have to be careful that maybe sometimes life has been leeching away, you know, the, the core of who we are and leaving just this veneer on the outside. And When that happens, it affects the world. It affects the world because then we aren't bringing our true authentic selves to the world. And what Jesus says next after this is he says that you're, you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world, and and this light is for everybody. It says it gives light to all in the house. You don't take that light and put it under a basket. You put that light on a lampstand so that that light shines for the entire world. And when that light shines for the world, the world sees what you're doing, and then they want to respect what you're doing. He says that let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And sometimes this can be confusing because in the very next chapter, Jesus is going to say, beware of practicing your piety before others. Okay, So sometimes you sit there and you read it and go, wait a second, beware of practicing your piety before others. I thought you just said we're supposed to let our good works shine. And the difference between those two passages is that he's talking about why you do it. All right? You don't practice, you know, there's a big difference. Don't practice your piety before others. Don't, don't show others how good you are. You know, when you're doing that, you're trying to show off how good you are. You're trying to say, I'm a good person, and I want you to see that I'm a good person, that God loves me. I want you to see that. And he says, then you're just showing off, then you're just bragging, and you're better off if you don't do it. But here it says they want to see your good works and give glory to God. All right, that, that if you're doing good work so that it is giving glory to God, this is a good thing. that the good things you do should be giving glory to God. And when it gives glory to God, this is this is good. All right? They want to see you living in a way that gives glory to God, because that is what will inspire others. And so we want to be people who are authentically living lives that are giving glory. To God, so that people will know who God is and that God cares. I mean, you know, people only know that Jesus cares when Christians care for them. All right? You know, if you you have an encounter with with folks who claim to be Christ followers and they're not very loving and they're not very caring, how can you convince them that God actually cares about them? You know, it's one of the hardest things that I actually deal with sometimes. I mean, you know, occasionally i have you know like that prayer request that we had today for the person who who lost his uh, who lost his wife suddenly okay uh, you know occasionally i i deal with folks who've suffered a tremendous tragedy in their lives right? and you sit there and 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 they wonder what's going on and they wonder why did this happen and you know, their loved one didn't deserve to have this happen to them. They didn't deserve to have this happen to them. And you sit down and you talk to them and you want to convince them. You want them to know, you know, you want them to somehow understand that God loves them. God cares about them, right? And whenever you sit down and talk to a person and just say those words, it just feels so Empty. It feels hollow because it's just it's just words, you know, like a bumper sticker. Jesus loves you, right? We've all seen cars with a bumper sticker like that, all right. Does that actually convince anybody that that God loves them? You know, oh, I know God loves me for a bumper sticker told me so, or something like that. you know <laughs> all right it It doesn't work that way. Okay? Somehow, the only way that love becomes real and people understand that God loves them is when people who claim to love God love them. When people who claim to love God actually show it to them in some kind of tangible way. And sometimes I think that the only way you have available is what Felicia was talking about in the children's moment today, which was undivided attention, quality time. Sometimes the only thing you can do to show people that you actually care when, you, when you're in a situation where you can't really do anything about it, you can't really help with the situation, is it, to actually give them some time. It's to actually give them some attention, to actually sit with them and just listen to them and in that way show that you care and hope that in that way they come to understand that God actually cares about them. And then Jesus says, you, you, can't, you have to do this abundantly you have to do this excessively all right he, he goes on in, with this teaching and he says you know I tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven and now I, I want to break this down a little bit and and talk about what that word means we talked about four weeks ago so in the in the message four weeks ago we talked about that word righteousness and it's a word that the Pharisees and Scribes would have studied. Okay, so when he talks about the, the Pharisees and scribes, he's talking about people who are experts in the law. All right. They're experts in religion. All right? But religion is certainly a case where being knowledgeable is not the same as being faithful. And and believe me, I I say that as a pastor, okay? Being knowledgeable is not the same as being faithful, all right? Um, I don't think you can necessarily ever rank order people in terms of how, you know, Christian they are or how faithful they are, but uh, to the extent that maybe we are judgmental and do that, I I know for certain that, um, I know for me, uh, I would not... Put myself in the top tier of the people in this congregation. <laughs> okay? All right, you know, if you sat there and said, hey, pastor, take your church, including yourself, and rank everybody according to how you, how, how, how good you think they are at being Christian. All right? Um, I'm not at the top of the list. All right? And if you've ever seen me drive in rush hour traffic, you would see that rating just start to plummet. <laughs> okay? All right? I, I, I am nowhere near the top of the list. I, I, I see... Um, so many folks in the congregation who have such pure hearts and, have, and, and do such wonderful things. Um, and sure, yeah, they didn't go to seminaries. They don't have the, you know, the, the, the academic background, but that's kind of the difference. All right? The Pharisees and scribes have the academic background. They're, they're the ones who could read the scriptures in a society when most of the people weren't literate. They're the ones who understood the historical background of where these scriptures came from. They're the ones who could explain it. But that didn't mean that they were the best at living it. And too often, the people would confuse the two. And they would think that the people who were experts in it were also the role models for how to live it. And maybe in an ideal world, that's the case. But in a practical level, it's not. And Jesus is telling them that they have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the experts in the law. And I think that's something that everybody should aspire to. But anyway, as I said, four weeks ago this word righteousness came up again. It comes up a lot in the scriptures and so it came up in, and I mentioned in the sermon what it actually means. It doesn't mean what we often associate with the word. When we hear the word righteousness we often think about somebody who is strictly adherent to the law. They park between the lines. okay? They do exactly what they're supposed to do. But instead that word righteousness in Greek is this word dikaiosune, which means the practice of fairness, justice, and equitableness. The practice of fairness, justice, and equitableness. To be righteous is to pursue fairness, is to pursue justice, is to pursue what is equitable for the people. That is what it means to be righteous. It's not about this obedience to law. It is about, am I a person who is for fairness? Am I a person who is for justice? Am I a person who is for equitableness? And this is so important. Jesus had singled it out in the Beatitudes last week. And and remember in last week's passage, he says this. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for fairness, for equitableness for they will be filled. And he's just playing, it's a play on words there because that word filled means to be satisfied inside. All right? That if you hunger and thirst for justice, for fairness, for equitableness, you will be satisfied inside. And, and imagine what it would mean for the world if that's what we were known for as, as people of faith. Imagine what it would mean for the world if everybody sat there and said, you know, those Christians, those Christians, those Christ followers, man, they are, they are absolutely the people who are after justice, fairness, and equitableness in the world. Those Christians, you better not, you have, better be careful. You better not say anything that even hints at racism or misogyny or homophobia around them because they won't put up with it because they are for justice and fairness and equitableness. That would be a great reputation for us to have. You know, wouldn't it be amazing if that's what the average person associated with with Christians? That we won't stand for unfairness of any kind, that we won't stand for inequality of any kind, that we won't stand for prejudice of any kind. And yet, sadly, that's not our reputation. But how can it become that? How can we work toward it? I think one of the things that that happens is that we, we look at these things in too much of a binary. I think that's one of the problems that we have is, is we think in terms of good people and bad people and we think in terms of, of I'm good enough or not good enough. All right? We think in terms of, of you're salty or you're not salty. We think in terms of your light is, is shining or your light is hidden. But I think in reality that's much more of of a gradation and not a binary, you know. Um one of my favorite shows that just ended fine, uh, after four seasons was The Good Place. Any Good Place fans here? Okay. All right. And we can, we can sit down and talk and debate the finale sometime. All right, But one, one of the premises of The Good Place, so The Good Place is really about, The Good Place is, is basically the equivalent of heaven. Okay, so, so there's a good place and a bad place. And when people die, the show began under the premise that when, when people die, you had amassed a certain number of points. So right away, as a Christian, by the way, we don't like the premise because it's all works righteousness, alright? It's not about salvation by faith, it's all about salvation by works. You either had enough points to go to the good place, Or you didn't have enough points and you went to the bad place so it was entirely a binary you were the good enough or not you were were you enough salt or not enough salt was your light shining you know like how many lumens you need your light needs to shine it needs to shine at 774 lumens and if your light is is shining above that you get to go to the good place if not you go to the bad place so it began on the idea that it was entirely a binary But as the show evolved, and actually, if you watch the show, you'll get a lesson in moral philosophy along the way. As you get to the end of the show, what they end up at is the idea that what was more important than the binary, that what was more important than what side of the line you were on was whether you were getting better every day. See, eventually, what blows up the premise is that people who had died Supposedly, when the judgment is over, your life is over, the game is done, your score is in, they were continuing to change. And they were continuing to get better. And as they continued to get better, the question was should they then deserve to move from the bad place to the good place? Okay? So that's the premise of the show. But I liked the idea that the valuation was not about the absolute. The valuation was not about whether you were good or bad, which side of a a line in the sand you fell on. But it was about whether you were striving to get better every single day. And I think that's how we get to be the people whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It doesn't matter where you're starting from. The question is, are you trying to get better each day? Okay. So the question that I have is simply, can, can we be better today than we were yesterday? Can we be better today than we were yesterday? And Can we wake up tomorrow and decide we're going to be better than we were yesterday? See, the, the salt that Jesus talked about at the beginning of the passage, the, the salt that lost its saltiness, didn't lose it right away. It lost its saltiness as it got exposed to moisture, as the salt began to leach. It just had the salt go away and go away and go away until there was nothing left but the useless residue. And in that metaphor, you know, using salt as a metaphor in the real world, it's not going to work in the opposite direction. But I think in our lives it can. I think in our lives, it can work in the other direction, that we can resolve that we're going to build it up and build it up and build it up every day. I, I think we can resolve that, that today we're going to fight a little harder for righteousness. We're going to fight a little harder for justice, for fairness, for equitableness. We're going to stand a little more for that today than we did yesterday, just a little We're not going to get all the way there in a day. We can't just turn it on or off. We can do it a little at a time. We can just be better today than we were yesterday. That as followers of Christ collectively, as the church of Jesus Christ, we can can do a little more today than we did yesterday. And if we just keep doing that day by day, our righteousness will exceed every standard that had existed before. Because we will just have gotten better day after day. So whatever your increment's going to be, whether it's going to be a day, whether it's going to be a week, however it is, however you plan your life and look ahead at your life, can, can you just sit back and say, how will I be better at it today than yesterday? Or how will I be better at it this week than last week? Or how will I be better at it in March than I was in February? And if we just resolve to make those incremental improvements every single day, we'll never stop. And eventually, the results will be amazing. Amen.